So from the creation of the world to the night before the Lord's crucifixion, John recorded Christ's three-year ministry in 12 chapters. And then from this special night until the Lord's resurrection, John slows his narrative down to an hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute pace filled with detail. This morning, we will look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, the first eight verses of the high priestly prayer. And it reads as this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be glor- may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Father of the heavenly lights, who is eternal and does not change, we are thankful to you for this time of fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we look into your word. As we do that, may you light our path, stir our minds and our hearts that we may grow in understanding and obedience. How wonderful and amazing it is that you commanded John to make a record of the Lord Jesus' prayer to you. Lord, we are encouraged and instructed as the Lord prays for himself, his disciples, and for us who are yet to come and believe though we have not seen. You tell us that we are in the world but not of it. As you sent Jesus into the world, Jesus sends us into the world. Lord, grant us that there will be unity and communion among us and with you, our triune God. Amen. So the first number there in your outline, preparation. As Pastor Kevin reminded us, the book of John is often spoke of as two books, uh, called one would be the Book of Signs. That is the first major uh, section, and it is from chapter 1, 19 to the end. There's a hymn that comes before it, 1 through 18. We call that the hymn of the word. Uh, the book of signs derives its name from the seven signs, or the seven miracles of Christ. And the book of glory is where we are today. The book of glory is chapters 13 through 21, and it tells of Jesus' return to the Heavenly Father. 
He tells his disciples what's coming. He tells them that their lives will be without his physical presence, but that they will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to empower and remind them. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and for those who are yet to come. Inside the Book of Glory, chapters 13 through 17 are referred to as the farewell discourse. And chapter 17 is further referred to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus is our high priest. He is superior and preeminent. There is no other like him. Everything, everyone else, kings, prophets, angels, everything comes under him. Hebrews 7, 26-28 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then uh, for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This perfect son and savior gathered his disciples around him to teach, encourage, and pray for them. Many things happened that last night. All four gospels record some portion of that evening. Some events are common to all four Gospels. Some events are just to individual Gospels. But here's a quick overview of the events of that night. These events were known from time's beginning. First, the Lord Jesus sends his disciples out to make arrangements for the supper. Jesus tells his disciples that he will be betrayed. Sorrowing, they all said, is it I? Only one of them knows that he's the one. Jesus institutes the communion with bread and wine. There was a dispute among the, uh, the disciples as to who was the greatest. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and then Satan enters into Judas. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Jesus announces his coming betrayal. Jesus gives the disciples a new commandment that they must love one another. Jesus tells of Peter's coming denial. The Lord tells the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples, I am the true vine. Jesus warns his disciples that they will be hated by the world. He also promises that their sorrow would turn to joy. Jesus tells them that he has overcome the world. Jesus prays the high priestly prayer. Peter offers two swords. Jesus says, one will be enough. Jesus and his disciples sing a hymn together and then leave for Gethsemane. The Lord's high priestly prayer is near the end of their evening and it begins on chapter 17, verse one. Second point, the petition. The petition begins here and it runs throughout the whole high priestly prayer. It is a prayer of petition. 17.1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Let's take this verse in four small portions. When Jesus had spoken these words, and these words are from chapter 13, 1 to 16, 3. After he'd spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Looking up with one's eyes was the common custom for prayer among the Jews at that time, as much as our custom of bowing our heads to pray is. But for Jesus, it was so much more. He was looking directly into the Father's face. Jesus had done the same thing before in chapter 11, verse 41, at the tomb of Lazarus. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In our text now, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The hour had come. And how many times before that had Jesus said, my hour has not yet come during his ministry? Some that we know of. John 2.4, the wedding at Canaan, when Jesus speaks to his mother, and, says, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And then in John 7.8, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. John 7.30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. All the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew precisely what the hour was and when it would come. It wasn't going to be a random time. They weren't guessing. This plan has been in place from before the beginning of the world. The disciples were confused and afraid, but Jesus protected and comforted them, comforted them just as he does us. Our great and loving Father has made provision for us through his Son. Each one of us has our own hour, not like Jesus's where he saved all of the elect, but a specific hour when we will go to be with him. In God's creation, all things happen at exactly the right time. Point three says the glory. And this is really about this whole priestly prayer. It's a petition, but it's all about glory. So the, it goes on to say, the scripture, the last part of verse one, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This reciprocal giving and receiving of glory is a further testimony to the oneness of God's triune nature. Just in verses 1 through 5, glory is used five times. Once as glory, three times as glorify, and once as glorified. When we're studying a portion of scripture, and a word is used fairly often in it, it would be wise to pay extra attention to that. We use the word glory often in our prayer life, in church services. We even use glory as a synonym for the splendor and happiness of heaven. Glory is one of the most common praise words in scripture. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. Its literal meaning is importance, weight, deference, or heaviness. But primarily, 
Kabod was used to mean respect, honor, and majesty. Later on in history, the original Hebrew word for glory was translated into the Christian New Testament as the Greek word doxa. And from there, the Latin word gloria, and from there to the Old French, and from there to the Middle English, where it's glory as it is today. But the meaning kept expanding, extending the meaning to include magnificence, of great beauty, praise, distinction, extended by common consent. In other words, all believers believe that God is glorious. Great renown, worshipful praise, thanksgiving, a state of gratification or exaltation, something that secures, which is interesting because I'd never seen that until I did a study for this. Something that secures. God secures by his all-powerful will that glory will come to him. Glory is the core of chapters 13 through 21 and the shining centerpiece of our text today. Many authors have written about the glory of God. Two that have contributed to this topic are J.I. Packer, who wrote The Glory of God, and John Piper, who wrote God's Passion for His Glory. Both of these men clearly stated they were basing their work on Jonathan Edwards, the end for which God created the world, as Jonathan Edwards writing. John Piper says that Edward's work was hard to read in his time and even harder to read in ours, but we have to read it. The summation here is from J.I. Packer's The Glory of God. It says, the conclusion that Edwards offers is this. On the basis of biblical texts that speak of glory and of glorifying in four distinct though connected ways. One, that God's eternal and intrinsic glory consists of his knowledge, which is omniscience and wisdom. Two, that the glory of his holiness, it's the glory of his holiness is spontaneous, virtuous love linked with a hatred of sin. And three, the glory of his joy, the supreme and endless happiness. And four, the glory of his wisdom, wise, holy, and happy love that flows out from him like water from a fountain in loving spontaneity, which is, which is grace to us. The first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. His glory brings out our spirit-filled response of praise, bringing glory to God, and God glorifies and satisfies himself, achieving what his purpose was from the beginning. God made us so that our greatest happiness and ultimate joy would be to praise, thank, and serve him. We enjoy him most when we glorify him most. His great goal here is, here now, is to glorify himself through being glorified by rational human beings who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. God pours out his divine glory in acts of creation and redemption. His goal for himself and for all Christian mankind is always and always has been achieved by the ongoing and never-ending process. Unfortunately, because we're fallen, we sometimes seek glory for ourselves. And when we do that, we do it at the expense of God. I remember Pastor Jeff Alfasa saying in a sermon a while back, that the greatest temptation for a preacher is to steal the glory of God. 
it was incredibly impactful to me and true. We all want to be praised for what we do. And there's a poem called Helen, it's by Edgar Allan Poe, in which this often quoted line appears, the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome, well, that's gone. And in our current time, Russia says that she wants to regain her former glory. All the glory of men and nations in this world is taken at God's expense and he will have it back. However, it's not so with Christ. He laid his glory aside. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When Jesus asks the Father to glorify him in John 17, it is entirely appropriate. It wasn't at the expense of the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. The glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father. The Son asks at the end of verse 1, he says, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So we see the importance of glory as a concept, as a word here, but we also have to know that there is a very relevant word that we don't see it all in 17, 1 through 5, and that's joy. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had the great joy of completing his mission. Throughout his ministry, he was filled with joy. If you look at Luke 10, 21, it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, thank, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Father, for such is your gracious will. Jesus would go on to save souls and is going on for ages and ages to come and will bring them to glory and will bring Father glory without limit. He would have the joy Christ would have the joy of bringing others to the heavenly way to glory by way of the cross and he would have the joy of finally saving his bride for the gifts. Let's get back to the sentence that we started in verse 1 now and continues into verse 2. and It says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have 
to all whom you have given him. Jesus Christ was given authority to everyone who had ever lived and whoever will live. At the same time, the Father has a sovereign role in all salvation. However, authority over all flesh does not necessarily mean authority for salvation of all flesh. Many walked away from Christ in his day and many walk away today. The Father gives to the Son those he has chosen. Flash forward here to verse 6 for a minute. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. The people that God the Father had given were out of the whole population. The Father gives the Son only those who will come to faith in Christ. Christ then has the authority to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. The Son and the Father are both glorified by that. For us who are reformed in our views, uh, we know of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. This is the L in TULIP. R.C. Sproul says, has this to say about it. He says that I prefer not to use the term limited atonement because it's misleading. I rather speak of definite redemption or definite uh, uh, atonement. Indefinite redemption and indefinite atonement. In which communicates that God the Father designed the work of redemption specifically with a view to providing salvation for the elect and that Christ died for his sheep and laid down his life for those the Father had given him. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for all, but is efficient only for those the Father had sovereignly chosen. God's purpose in the cross was to ensure the salvation of those he had given to his Son. End quote. Some of us came from a background that believed in general atonement. I know I did. If you sinned, you had to repent, and you do, and then be saved again and again and again. Salvation could come and go depending on our actions. It wasn't until I read a book by R.C. Sproul explaining the Calvinist viewpoint that I could understand how salvation actually works. It was a relief to know and to call myself a sinner and to rest in Christ who died for all my sins. Nothing any of us can do makes us worthy of salvation. We are gifts to the Son from the Father. Let's look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now some commentators believe that that Verse 3 was a definition added by John. John adds things uh, in his uh, work about place and time and everything. So this might be the case to clarify the word eternal life. Others say, no, it's, it's just Jesus speaking it. But what's important here is the definition itself. This is what eternal life is. It is the essential knowing of God and Jesus Christ the Son. 
We'll see more of this as we go on to verses 6, 7, and 8. Thank God that he gave John such an amazing ability to record the earthly life and teaching of our Lord. Verses uh, 4 and 5 are in reverse order from verse 1, that is in 17.1, where Jesus asks first to be glorified, but here in verse 4, Jesus first glorifies the Father and says that uh, he had completed the work assigned to him. So verse 4, if you read it, it says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ glorified the Father by the work that he was sent to do. This gifting of glory will continue through the ages. God will choose the people that are to be saved. He will give them to Christ, and Christ will save them and bring them to the Father. Again, I say, we are. We are the gifts to the Father, and they're given by Christ. I mean, given to Christ by the Father. He, Father picks us out, and Christ completes it and saves us. Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is R.C. again. Jesus was from outside the physical world. He left the position of glory he had enjoyed from all eternity as the second person of the Godhead. He left glory to walk the earth as a man. Likewise, he was outside the world of sin, but God gave to him a number of followers who had been part of that world, whom God had rescued from that world and given them to the Son. Close quote. There's even a short chiasm in verses 4 and 5, where in verse 4 it says, First, glorify your Son, and then, so that the Son may glorify you. Then back into 5. I have glorified you, and now glorify me. Reciprocal glorification. There is a never-ending cycle of glorification within the Godhead. And now Jesus makes his last personal petition, to be glorified in the presence of the Father, not on earth, but at home. What an amazing moment this must have been when Jesus goes to the Father and the Holy Spirit and wraps his glory around him, all the glory of the natural and spiritual universe, billions of stars and galaxies, legions of angels, spiritual beings worshiping him, all creation bowing down before him. It's a moment so intense, so powerful, so majestic that we can believe it, but we can't comprehend it. David in Psalm 8, 1 through 4 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man, you care for him. Christ standing as one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the ultimate, ultimate triune God, holds the universe in his hands. And praise God, he holds us in his hand. 
he will not let us go. One day soon, we'll stand before him in glory and faith will become sight. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Two things. One is, when Jesus said, I have manifested your name, he was saying that he had made known the sum total of God's perfections, and he had made that obvious and clear. And the second thing is that at this time, he was speaking specifically to his disciples, to eleven that were around him. When Jesus said that they have kept their word, he's not saying that they had perfect obedience to the Mosaic law or even that they had kept all the commandments that Jesus himself had given them. But they had embraced the essential truths. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God and they put their faith in him. It's the same with us today. When we were saved, most of us had little or no idea of what the Bible says or how we were supposed to act. We were in Christ, and we are in Christ today because God took us out of the world and gave us to Christ, who manifested his word in us with the result that the gospel lives in our hearts now. Verse 7 says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. This is an echo of verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 25 through 31, especially 29 and 30. Uh, let's take a quick look back at those. 16, 25, it starts. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. This was their yes, aha moment, supposedly. But then Jesus says, and Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will, be, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The disciples didn't know all that would happen, but they were certain that Jesus had come from God. They had the essential idea, the definition from verse three. They were soon to know more at the cross and then know more at the resurrection and even more at Pentecost. I think that we can identify with the disciples. We thank God for his loving patience. How many times have we stumbled or failed or walked away arrogantly thinking that our understanding was complete 
or disobeyed the word or grumbled at times of distress. But Christ never failed us or abandoned us. He was never harsh. He was never threatening. His love breaks our stony hearts every time. And his love opens our blind eyes to see the many, many blessings that he showered on us. Verse 8 says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, the essentials. This is the report to the Father. Jesus focuses on the Father by repeating you as he did in verse 6. Yours they are, your word, everything you have given me is from you. Jesus was giving glory to the Father by acknowledging the Father's words and his will. This small group of 11 disciples was given by the Father to the Son. They had been separated out of the world by the electing work of the Father in which the apostles had been given as a gift to Jesus Christ. They were just the beginning of centuries of the Father taking sinners out of the world and giving them to the Son. Over the last two millennia, hundreds of billions of people have repented and turned to the Lord and been saved. Just in our time, there are an estimated 2.3 billion professing Christians in the world, making Christianity the largest religion on earth. God's will cannot be thwarted. He will be worshipped, and glory will flow to him in an ever-increasing flow. He will win. We will have his spot. We will be his spotless bride. He will have us at last. This gifting and reciprocal glorification has gone on through the ages and down to this day, to this moment. Jesus praised his disciples for responding to God's message through his son. We who believe have responded to the gospel. The disciples weren't perfect, neither we, but they had the right commitment. We who believe have the right commitment. As it says in Romans 10, 8 through 9, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The disciples understood, understanding was growing and their faith was growing. Our understanding and our faith is growing. Their faith in Jesus was a trust in his union with the Father. We trust in the triune Godhead. Their, their faith in Jesus was manifest in their obedience to his words just as our faith is seen in our obedience. They believed in his divine mission to save sinners and sinners that we are. We praise God that Jesus' mission continues today. Brothers and sisters, we eagerly look forward to a time when our faith will be sight and we will be standing in his presence, washed by his blood and wrapped in his glory, as he said to the Father in John 17, 22, 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Them, that's us. He's given his glory to us. 
and it's beyond our imaginations. I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is hard to get your head around. He loves us like he loves the Son, Jesus Christ. It's just beyond uh, comprehending. But it's true. And he says that in his word, and his word is true. But if you're hearing this today for the first time, or the hundredth time, and have not yet come to Christ, consider this. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's not the preacher's job to frighten people into making a choice between heaven or hell. It is the preacher's job to give a wake-up call to the saints to come. If you are called by God, if you are elect, you will come to God. So wake up. Repent and come to your Lord and we will rejoice with you. Please pray with me. Father God, we offer you praise, honor, and gratitude for the gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You who are the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to you be honor and eternal dominion. We bless your holy name because you are good, because your mercy is everlasting and your truth endures forever. Bless us, Lord. Call us and use us in any way you see fit. You tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We pray earnestly, Lord, that of the harvest, that you send us out to labor in your fields. Strengthen our hands. Sharpen our minds. Build our faith into a fortress. By your great, mighty, and unending love, your kingdom, power, and glory will be forever. Amen.